welcome to Inside Education, the podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. My name is Sean Delaney, I'm a teacher and teacher educator, and an audio version of my book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, will soon be available. You can listen to or download over 400 previous episodes of Inside Education on my website, seandelaney.com slash podcasts. You can write to me by email to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter, where I use the handle at InsideEd. Although I try to put out a podcast every week, this year is proving to be a bit more challenging for various reasons. However, I'll do my best to keep producing a variety of podcasts about teaching throughout the year. This week, I want to introduce you to a teacher who has won a Tony Award for Excellence in Theatre in Education. She was recommended to me by a long-term friend of the podcast, John Heffernan, who taught in the same school system in Albemarle in Charlottesville, Virginia. Madeline Michael is the theatre director in Monticello High School in Charlottesville, Virginia. Madeline encourages her students to write plays and the productions in her school engage a diverse cast and crew and reflect community service. You'll like this week's podcast if you're interested in drama education and in the potential of theatre to promote inclusion in your school. When I spoke to Madeline through Zoom, I first asked her to describe her job as a theatre director in Monticello High School. My job is to teach classes during the day. I mean, it's weird now because we're virtual, but usually it's to teach classes during the day. And then after school, we're always either working on, you know, some kind of project, either a a one-act play or two one-act plays, a musical, a Shakespearean play, whatever. And when you say teach classes during the day, are they literature classes or are they theatre okay. or drama classes? Oh, no. <laughs> it's funny you should ask that. No, they are they're drama classes. Yeah, I used to be an English teacher, but now I have just a whole schedule of drama. And drama is a high school subject in, the, in Charlotte. It is a high school subject, but I'm not sure that I approach it the same way as other people. <laughs> okay, well, maybe tell us how you do approach it. I approach it for me you know I didn't major in theater or anything in in college in fact I dropped out of the one theater class I took because I thought it was kind of ridiculous but for me what what theater does for kids what drama theater you can call it whatever you want it's the same thing Um, what it does for kids for me is it teaches them how to express themselves how to tell their stories Um, It gives them confidence so that no matter what they do in life, they will always have those building blocks to, you know, they'll always have that sense of their own story to tell, to take wherever they go. So it's about finding their own stories. Finding their own stories, um, very often writing their own stories. In the United States, everything has to be a competition. And I don't know how other countries do this, but in the United States, everything is done with a sports paradigm. You know, you have to face off with this group and then face off with that group. And then there's a winner, which is really ridiculous in in the arts. Like there shouldn't be competition in the arts. It's stupid. But, you know, I'm part of a system, so I do it. And I stopped using other people's one-act plays because I found that my students can write their own one-act plays. And they're fantastic and they're better than anything that you can um, that you can buy because mostly one act plays aren't very good anyway because they're written for high school and they're not very good. And you said that you teach during the day and then you do all these one act plays and things after school. 
Is that part of your contract or is that something you volunteer to do? It's kind of expected. I mean, I do get a small stipend for working after school, but um, part of the reason I do it is that, you know, my kids are grown. They've been grown for a while. You know, I don't mind. I really, really enjoy it. If I had other things that I had to rush home and do, I probably would be too stressful. The other thing I thought was interesting in uh, your earlier answer was you said theatre and education, drama and education, it's all the same. Now, I come from a background where when I was studying to be a teacher, we were told that there's quite a difference between theatre and drama and education, that theatre was more associated with the performance and the play, whereas drama was more about personal development and expression. So you don't make that distinction. No, definitely not. And especially like high school kids are so, first of all, it's, you know, things are different from when I grew up. Kids are on screen all the time. You know, they maybe have shorter attention spans. I don't know. They're trapped inside a school for seven hours, much longer than I was when I was in school. And each of their classes is 80 minutes. That's a really long time to sit through a class. So when they come to my class, they're going to sit on couches, they're going to get up, they're going to move around, they're going to do some dance. You know, we're just always moving and, and doing, because otherwise I wouldn't have an enrollment at all. Nobody would want to be in, in drama class. If I, if I said like, okay, today we're going to learn about Greek theater, I would have an enrollment of two. So it is an optional subject then. It's not a core subject that every student has to do. Right. No, no, no. It's an optional subject. And, uh, you know, I think in some, in some schools, it's only taught, maybe there's only two or three classes. And then the drama teacher also teaches English or history or something else. But um, I've made the switch over to full-time drama. And I think that's partly because I try to make it appealing for all kids and and I have to say that in, at least in the state of Virginia, from what I've seen, like theater started out being a very kind of upper middle class white kid thing. And I decided, like when I first got my first two classes, it was all like 17 white girls and then a guy. And I decided that there's something wrong. Like if you're not representing the entire demographic of your school, there's something wrong. So how do you bring in kids who would think like, I don't want to do drama. That's weird. So I spent a lot of time trying to attract other kids and like a diverse group of kids. And I feel like my world is the most diverse place in our school because I don't sequence my classes. I don't have like drama one, drama two, drama three, drama four. I have classes where, you know, it just depends on what period you have free. I have ninth graders in with 12th graders. They mentor them. They form friendships. They, you know, the younger kids learn from them. It's fantastic. Okay. So it's not even grade specific. You have all grades in your classes. All grades in my classroom. Everybody. Everybody's welcome. And you've managed to get a more diverse student body then than those uh, 17 white girls that you talked about in the first class. Because when you like when you hear people's stories, when you let kids know that their story is important to hear and their talents are important to highlight, then they want to be there. The other thing is, oh, I was (laughs) this is my new credo. 
Um, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. So we've been, we've been talking about that this year. And we decided, all of my students and I decided that we're all disturbed, especially during a pandemic and teaching virtually. We're all disturbed and we need to be comforted. But we also need to disturb the comfortable because things are not going very well right now in our country. And my students are very disturbed by it. And how did you become interested in drama or theatre and education? Because you said you were an English major. So when did that transition happen? I had some good, I had some good courses in dramatic literature in college. But also, I was that person in high school that was in all the plays. I, you know, I always wanted to, I was always in the plays. Um, but as I got older, I realized, well, this isn't really a, you know, a realistic way to make my, I tried stand-up comedy for a while. I mean, I do, I mean, I like to perform, but what I love so much is watching kids write and perform. And I just love to watch them sort of lead other kids. I kind of step back a lot of times. I always have like a student, a student director, a student choreographer. I don't hire adults to do any of that. You know, we have like lighting design and and um, stage design and I and the kids really take the lead on that stuff. And did you receive any professional development in drama or theatre over the years? <laughs> That's a funny question. Well, I have colleagues that I've learned from. I have a few colleagues that know things. There are a lot of people who know things that I don't know. There's so many people who know things that I don't know. So I'm really good at finding those people and getting them to teach me. But I wouldn't say I did formal, no, I, it wasn't formal. It was more like, hey, I heard you know how to do this. Can you help me? Um, or can you help my students? And everybody wants to help adorable, energetic, shining, bright students. And did you read in the area? I see, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm curious because I mean, we're talking, what is this read that you speak of? Is this like, I've heard of these things called books that you open and I've heard they have pages inside them and you can turn the pages. So um, you, you, you didn't find them helpful. I do read, but you know what I read about? It's not so much theater. I'm like a his, history and political junkie sort of. And so I read a lot of that. I read a lot about, um, See, I believe that education is really just like a microcosm of an, of an entire political system. And so the problems in the large, you know, the large world are all very visible in my world. And so I feel like it's my job to be aware of what's going on in the world and to, um, to try to fix it in my little microcosm. And, and I will say this, that my, my first teaching job when I was right out of college was in Baltimore. I taught at, in the poorest school in Baltimore, in the poorest neighborhood in Baltimore. It was um, in West Baltimore. And it was so horribly underfunded, like shockingly underfunded. The kids would come in the first day and there might be 45 kids in a class and maybe only 25 seats and desks in the room. Everyone was packed in. There was no air conditioning. 
it, it was really the worst circumstances. And I remember thinking at that time, this is going to prepare me to be a better teacher, to be a better person, and it's going to shape my life. And it did. Like those nine, 10 years that I spent in Baltimore completely shaped the way I see the world, the way I see education, the way I see kids. You said that your school and your students are a microcosm for, for the country. And you've also said that it's a tough time in your country right now. So how does your country, how does it manifest itself in the microcosm of your school at the moment? First of all, the wealthier people in our area, a lot of them went to private schools. You know, they just recently left because the private schools are still able to, they're smaller, they're able to, you know, be in person some days. So that's one thing. Um, just connectivity, just the, um, the internet. You know, some families don't have good internet. Other families might have like a couple of MacBooks to use. And another kid is just using the computer he was given by the school and has really faulty internet. So um, that, and a lot of kids have to babysit their, they can't really give their full attention to virtual learning because they have to babysit little brothers and sisters while their parents have three jobs. There's a lot of COVID in certain communities here because those are the frontline workers and those are the people who are living in close quarters. So like, just healthcare, access to internet, like these very basic things I see played out before me all the time. And if we go back then to the, the drama and the theater lessons, one of the things you mentioned there was students writing their own plays. Mm -hmm. And how do you stimulate teenagers to write a play? Okay, so we write little things, like really short little things in class, but every summer, I start a writing group and it usually starts by the end of the year. And it's usually maybe five or six kids who are particularly interested in telling a story. So for the last, I'm going to say for the last eight years, I've had kids writing their own stories. And one of them, right after what happened in Charlottesville um, in 2017, you know, the Unite the Right rally, one of the boys in my class, he was only 16 at the time, he wrote something called A King's Story. And it was about police brutality and it, it was set against the backdrop of Charlottesville. It was a fictional with some nonfiction in it. And boy, did the, so many people tried to shut that play down. So many adults tried to shut it down because they felt that it was rude to the police, that it was too, um, you know, one-sided, and and it was written in it was written in hip-hop narrative. He wrote the whole thing. He's amazing, this kid. So he's in college now. But um, they really tried to bully him. A lot of adults tried to bully him to shut that show down. And at the end of it, he did not shut it down. We did not change a word, and it got you know, and it was very well received. And we were invited to perform it at the local um, community theater and everything. But, you know, my kids are in, those are the things that they're interested in. They're interested in, you know, gentrification, um, Confederate symbolism. Uh, one girl, oh, immigration. That's something they're very interested in too. Last year I had um, an Indian American girl write a beautiful play that was partly in Punjabi. 
And it was really beautiful. Like there's so much talent in these kids and there are so many great stories. So if you meet with them and find out the stories they want to tell, and then of course the group sort of edits and we give, we give advice and suggestions and everything. What's your role then in bringing those stories to fruition? I'm a good editor. I'm a really good editor. And I, I'm a confidence giver. And then we all meet together over the summer. We, we all meet together and we, you know, we, we do like table readings and stuff like that. So, I don't know, it's a nice group. It's never usually more than about six or seven. And the longer ones are worked on over the summer. And then during the school year, you work on shorter pieces. Very, very very short pieces. Are we talking like a minute? Yes. Like two minutes, a minute, two minutes. Yeah. Because I have very, okay. So my classes are very diverse as far as interest, background, and even, you know, levels. Like for example, you know, one kid may be taking straight AP classes and maybe taking calculus in 10th grade. And another kid may be really struggling with reading and writing, you know, and another kid may not know English yet. And the first day in your class of a, with a new group of students, and I yeah. know this year is different with the online, but in general, what's the first day like if you're face-to-face with a group of students that maybe you don't know or you haven't met before? Okay, we find out really important things about each other, like do we like fruity candy or chocolate candy? Those really important things that define us. Um, and we, like we eat candy together. And we, um, I don't know, we tell... We talk about like the most embarrassing thing we ever wore or whatever. And we just kind of bond. Like we try to get to trust and to, it's really all about building community, honestly. And I feel like, I feel like I'm pretty good at that because I don't have a personal agenda about me. Like I, I've already done everything I need to do in life. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't need any more accolades. I don't need any more work. I don't need, you know, I don't need anything. So it, they know that it's all about them. I will do anything for them. And what and do I want you- to go to college and I want to give, I want to get them scholarships and I want them or to get a great job or whatever, or to, you know, to, to make music, whatever they want to do. And what can your colleagues who teach other subjects, what can they learn from your approach to teaching drama? You know, they're most of, okay. I think they either hate me or love me. I have a very strong personality. So people either really hate me or or really love me. The ones that love me, we learn so much from each other. I love to collaborate with the Spanish teacher or the history teacher or, you know, a, um, a chorus teacher or whatever. I love to collaborate and I have so much respect for the work that, that my colleagues do. But I think what they, I think what they learned from me also just as an older person, I think what they can learn from me is like, don't, don't fight every battle. Like every little battle isn't important. Just let it go. You know, bring the joy. Your little subject is not the most important thing in the world, and you don't want it to make or break a kid's life. That's an, it's an important lesson to remember, even though I'm sure parents might say, well, I do want my son or daughter to be really good at Spanish, or I do want them to be really good at mathematics. Oh, or... Yes, and it's really, I mean, I want my kids to be really good at writing and acting and dancing and everything. 
And, you know, it is really important to keep high standards, but you don't ever want to become like punitive. You know what I'm saying? Because like grades should never be a punishment. Sometimes people call them consequences, but they really mean punishment. Where do you find ideas for inspiring students to create drama or theater? Um, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I like, I like to, um, I like to read stuff. I, I like to, um, sometimes I'll just get an idea from watching a comedy show. Or I, I talk it over with my husband. My husband's really good about, but he's an engineer. And he helps the kids learn how to build and do um, sound, sound engineering and lighting and stuff. So we make kind of a good team because I have no engineering skills, nothing. But I don't know, I just have a lot of joy in me. And I grew up in New York in a Jewish household. And we like talked a lot and joked a lot. So I guess humor and conversation have been part of my life since I was a little kid. And how do you choose musicals or plays for students to perform them? I hate most musicals. Like I really don't like them. If you make me sit through A Sound of Music one more time, no. And it's intolerably long. I choose them, honestly, I choose them by dance. The music, because I have these choreographers. I've had the most amazing choreographers for the last 10 years. And they're mostly girls and some guys of color who are amazing dancers and they, they make up dances and everything. So I, I let them help me choose the music. I have them listen to different musicals and I don't do the same musical. Every time you see a list of like the 10 most frequently done musicals in high school, not one of them is ever on my list, ever. And are they, 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 the choreographers, are they volunteers or are they collaborators or where, where, do you, where do they come from? They're in the show, they're students. They're usually like 11th or 12th graders and they become lead dancers in the show. So students can take the, can, can they take drama over a number of years? Yeah, they can take it for four years or they don't have to take it at all. If they just, you know, if they don't have room for it on their schedule and they just want to be in the musical, that's fine too. So it sounds from what you're saying that a lot of, you put a lot of trust in the students. I do. And I have almost never been regretful about it. So what's, what's involved in putting on a play or a musical with high school students? Oh my God, it's so hard. Uh, you have to work with another teacher who teaches the music. And a couple of times I've had kids teach the music because I couldn't find an adult to work with. So you have to have a good relationship with someone to teach the music. And then honestly, we just have so much crazy fun. We have a lot of fun. And we, we rehearse from four o'clock to 6.30 every day. And then tech weeks, we go till like 8.30 or yeah, about 8.30. But honestly, I think it's just so much fun because I don't think I'm a perfectionist. For me, it's all about the energy. Sometimes I'll sit through somebody else's musical and everybody has a gorgeous voice, like an amazingly gorgeous voice and they hit every single note, but I'm so freaking bored the whole time. And I make sure that my musicals have so much dance in them and like just so much energy 
that you don't have time to be bored. If somebody hits a wrong note once in a while, it's okay. And who coordinates things like, you know, playing the music, doing the lighting, the staging? They do all of that. Yes. Now there's um, like my husband will kind of set it up. You know, he'll help set up all the equipment and everything. But the kids run the whole show. Like during the show, they run the whole thing, everything. Yep. And you talked about working until 8.30 on Tech Week. What's Tech Week? Tech Week is like, we have two Tech Weeks, the two weeks before um, the show. And, you know, I don't like to stress kids out that much. So I'm not going to keep them till 11 o'clock at night. You know, that's it. You know, Monday through Thursday, they can stay or Monday through Friday, they can stay till 830 and then go home. And we have dinner together and everything. So it's really nice. In Ireland, we don't have a subject called drama or theater in high school. So if you were to make a case for introducing such a subject, how would you go about making that case? I don't know much about Ireland. I would say, why? Is it because it's, it's more like scholastic oriented? Yeah, I think most students would encounter plays through English literature or other literature subjects. Right. See, that's another thing. Um, we have to change the paradigm and change the canon because nobody wants, to, nobody wants to read The Crucible anymore. Nobody wants to read Shakespeare anymore. Like, my kids are not interested in you know reading 18th century and restoration comedies at all so we have to change everything around now but anyway what you said about literature don't you have like a don't you have drama clubs after school that put on plays yes it would generally be done after school but not in school and not as part of the curriculum and it is done in primary school or elementary but it's not done in high school oh that's kind of sad so is music done in high school yes Music is. And is art done in high school? Yes. Okay, so that's interesting. I can sort of understand it in that those are considered more like, um, almost like scientific. You know, you have to learn, you know, music. And I don't think there's a comparison between learning to act and learning to make an oil painting or learning to play a concerto. I think that it's much more difficult and much more arduous And I think that acting is more of an innate, you can get better at it, but I feel like it's sort of an innate personality thing. People would kill me if they heard me say this, but I don't, I really don't subscribe to that whole, like it's the Meisner theory or it's the, you know, it's the Strasbourg. It's the, you know, I don't know if I even believe that stuff. I feel like, you know, just get up there and do it. And the more you do it, you'll get better at it. But I don't see it as a skill the same way that I see music and art as a skill. So I understand that in Ireland, that they may think that it's a waste of time. But, and I don't know, maybe in some ways it is a little bit of a waste of time. What's wrong with a frivolous hour of like getting up and doing improvisation and and reading scenes? What's wrong with that? It's fun. What, in Ireland you can't have fun? (laughs) <laughs> oh, we know how to have fun, all right, but uh, just not, not, not through drama in high school. Um, I, I, the other thing I want to come back to, you were very quick to dismiss Shakespeare and all of, all of those. Not Shakespeare, not the comedies. I don't okay. have any use. But do you think that if we only introduce students to contemporary material or their own work, that, that we, we miss out on an opportunity to, to introduce them to their heritage? 
whose heritage? Well, I mean, humanities. Yeah, but that's like... I mean, it could be the Greek play. I mean, you also dissed the Greek plays earlier. But what I'm saying is like the, the, that's, nobody ever reads African plays. Like uh, there was African theater and dance before there was ballet. Mm-hmm. And nobody ever reads that stuff because most teachers are white. But I was going to tell you this about Shakespeare. When I worked in Baltimore, I had to teach Shakespeare. I was required to teach like Pilgrim's Progress and, you know, all kinds of really dated things. And I had to pick, I had to pick a Shakespearean play to teach. I had to. And I did. I did. We did Othello and we did Macbeth. And these kids, like a lot of them, not, not only could they not read it or understand it, I couldn't read it and understand it until I taught it. Like I learned it by teaching it. In high school, I didn't know what the heck any of that stuff meant. So, you know, we did it by, I, we slogged through it and we made it work by, by draw, like actually acting it out, bringing in some fake swords and whatever. We made it a little bit more spicy. We talked about sex a lot, but you know, no, I don't think that, I don't think it's necessary for, you know, black kids to read Shakespeare. And I don't even think it's necessary. I think that some of the Shakespearean stories are really interesting, but okay, let me tell you what I've found out about my students. This is white, black, brown, everybody, okay? The, all those books that they're supposed to read in English class, they don't read them. They read the spark notes. They don't read them. So it's time for us as adults to know the truth and to accept the truth. That, that maybe they're doing it in, in Ireland, but let me tell you something, in the United States, kids are not reading this stuff. They're just reading the spark notes online. So if they're not reading it, do we still ask them to fill out, okay, now answer these questions. You know, what kind of car was Joe driving in chapter two? Like, do we still do this or do we try to find something that they actually will read? That's my question. Just, just trying to be realistic. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. In the current climate with physical distancing, how do you teach theater and drama? It's awful, terribly. Okay, terribly, uh, as best as I can. You know, they come on, I give them challenges, I give them games, um, we do scenes together. I'm putting together like a little thing of monologues that they've been doing. I give them a prompt and I say like, you know, why don't you write a little monologue about this? And then they video and then they send it to me and we're gonna put together some kind of montage, but I'm not doing the, I'm not doing Zoom plays. I'm not doing them because I've seen too many Zoom plays and they, they break my heart. Like they're, they're terrible. In what way are they terrible? Oh my God, they're just so sad. They're just like, like, okay, this is better than nothing. It's better than nothing. That's all I can say. I'd rather watch a movie. I mean, at least a movie, like if you're watching a movie, you can really suspend disbelief. But if you're watching a bunch of people on a screen in a square, how do you suspend disbelief and really get into the characters? It's like, okay, he's in a box and there are cabinets behind him. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I see that. I don't mean to be so, like, I don't mean to be so dismissive. I, I mean, I did, my, my students were in a play this summer 
It was in a, it was a musical and it was, it was fine. They were really good, but like there was no dancing in it. There was no like interaction. The kissing scene didn't happen. Like none of that good stuff happened. So it's okay, but I just don't want to waste my time doing it. I'd rather do other things that work well virtually than do something that I think works poorly virtually. So it sounds to me like energy and movement is huge for you in drama and theater. It is, and that's why we're suffering. Okay. We have so much fun when we come into class because like we put on some, some music, usually some kind of like hip hop or, or bachata or something. And then one of the kids will lead a dance, you know, one of the students, and then they'll, you know, they'll pass it to someone else and they'll lead a, a dance. It's really, it's beautiful and it's energetic and it makes me so happy to be with them. So I, like, I'm really sad this year. And I'm angry. I'm angry at our federal government for doing such a terrible, terrible, disastrous job of handling this pandemic. I'm angry. Uh, yeah, we, we, I mean, we've seen some of the, the stories here as well from, 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 the, from the, 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 the states. If we go on to assessment in drama, what do students learn from studying drama and theatre? In my class? Probably not much. <laughs> in my class? Yes. Uh, okay, in my class... They learn about other cultures. They learn little bits of history that they would never learn in, they may learn about the Vietnam War. They may learn about the, um, the 1954 uh, coup in Iran. They may learn little bits of history that I weave into things to teach them a particular like universal idea. Cause I do love history. So yeah, they learn that kind of stuff. They might learn that the bilingual students are the smartest students in the room because they know two languages. They might learn how to dance the way other cultures dance. They might learn a new dance that they've never learned before. But I think what they learn most of all is how to trust other people, how to build a community with different kinds of people that they wouldn't be in classes with. Like here's a girl that's not going to be in your AP history class, but she's in your drama class and you get close through that. And what kind of assessment approaches are used in drama or theater education? Uh-oh. Do you want a true answer? Yes, or please. A good answer. No, All I right, want I'm... a true answer. We can come to the good one later, but let's start with the true one. I have a really hard time with assessment. To me, assessment is participation. If you're participating, you're going to get an A. No question about it. You come in, you try your best. So what? Somebody else is a better actor than you are. Somebody else has more confidence. Someone else is a better dancer. Someone else is a better writer. You're coming in and you're being part of the group. You're going to get an A. Period, as my students would say. Period. Okay, so now give me the good answer. <laughs> the good answer is I use a 24-box rubric for all of my assignments. And what's in the rubric? What, what, are, the, what are the aspects, elements? master the task? Uh, did you, did you uh, exceed expectations for the task? Did you meet expectations? Madeline, one of the reasons we're talking is because you won what is uh, very well known here in Ireland, a Tony Award. You won it for Theatre and Education in 2019. Can you tell me a bit about that award? I totally owe it all to a student named Luca Huff, who is 
He was 16 years old when he made this video. Someone in the neighborhood, a parent, nominated me for this thing. And I was like, oh, that's really nice. And then I looked at what I had to do. And I said, oh my God, this is gonna be a lot of work and I don't have any chance of winning this. I, d I don't even have a theater degree. So I got Luca to make this great video and I just told him what I wanted. He did it all by himself, made this beautiful three minute video that captured exactly what I wanted captured. And then what else? And then I had to put up things like, um, you know, excerpts from shows that I've done and my mission statement and then um, letters from people, letters of, um, of recommendation. And I was so surprised. You have no idea how little I expected to win this. And when they called me into the principal's office and someone said, you won this, uh, you won the Tony award. I really thought that this, I was being pranked. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who is this really? So it was really, it was something. But it, it sounds like a very thorough process. If you had to send in excerpts of your work and your mission statement and the video. I worked really hard doing this. And that's why I, you know why I really worked hard doing it is because I, I wanted to honor the parent, the community member who, I mean, I didn't really want to do it, but I was like, she's my next door neighbor. I like, I have to do this. So yeah, it was really, it was really nice. And I got some good recommendations and everyone at the Tonys was so kind. And they treat, it was really funny because they treated me like I was in the military. I don't know if you know this, but in the United States, you're supposed to say to military people, thank you for your service. I didn't uh, know that. That's what they were all saying to me. All the Broadway stars were like, oh, thank you for your service. Like, yes, I'm an American hero. <laughs> and, and there was a cash uh, prize with the award, wasn't there? Yeah, um, it was $10,000 to the department. And it was the best cash prize, which was really sad. They couldn't use it, was equivalent to really $20,000. Two students were selected to take this summer program at Carnegie Mellon University. Carnegie Mellon is like, unbelievable when it comes to theater programs and also engineering. They're just a really great institution. So I had two girls picked out and they weren't able to go. So because to of the pandemic. Yes. But next year I'm hoping the pandemic will be over and I will pick two new people to do that because the two girls are graduating. So I'll have two people in mind for next year. And one of the greatest things that they gave me um, for a prize was they sent these amazing theater professors, a dance professor and a theater professor over to do workshops with my kids. And I learned, I learned so much from that. If I had been in their classes, I wouldn't have dropped theater. What kind of things did they do? Well, the dance guy did all kinds of like interesting movements. He taught movements and then he taught a little uh, choreography piece and the kids, oh my God, they loved it. They picked it up so well. His name is Tomei Cousin and Catherine Moore did the, the theater and she also did a lot of movement. She did so much movement. And I realized that there really was so much crossover between the dance and the theater. 
So it was great. And you know what? Kids who didn't think of themselves as dancers participated with great joy. And what kind of music do you use for, to accompany the dancing? We use mostly hip hop music and, um, you know, Latin beats like uh, bachata and salsa music. Um, that's mostly what we use. Okay. So, because the ones, the kids in my class who love dance most are the kids of color because they feel it's something that's so much a part of their culture and they've grown up with it and they feel confident there. That's where they first expand their leadership skills. And then they realize, wait, I'm not just a dancer and choreographer. I'm an actor and I'm a writer too. And I'm a singer. So, you know, it may start with dance, but then it branches out. By the way, in Ireland, they do that like arm thing dance where the arms go down and they did, it's called clogging, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it was called Irish, just called Irish dancing, but I think river dance changed that a little bit. <laughs> river dance kind of opened it up a bit more. Oh, river dance. Look, yeah. Don't get started with river dance. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, I remember being in New York at the tickets booth and uh, I remember asking uh, somebody if they recommended going to Riverdance and they said, no, watch the DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're coming near the end, Madeline. I have just a few general questions about education. My first one is, what is school for or what are schools for, in your view? What should they be for or what are they for? I think they are for extending the status quo and giving people their, um, their part in society that they've already been destined to have and not really, not really shaking things up. That's how school is. What should it be? Oh, it should be a place where it's open to where you can like go beyond your upbringing and, and, you know, and, learn things that you never thought you would want to learn or could learn. And it's where every child should be valued and given so much personal care. Is it like that? No, because schools are underfunded because they're not a priority. Weapons are very well funded. So what would it take to bridge those two visions then of what it is and what it should be? Honestly, like a whole Bernie Sanders revolution, to be honest. Like we have got to change our priorities in this country from the, you know, making money from weaponry and exporting war and weapons and um, giving, you know, tax breaks to billionaires. We need to value working people. We need to pay people more. We need to give everyone health care. And those are the things that will really change the schools. I sound like such a socialist right now, don't I? I am. <laughs> Is there a teacher who had a significant impact on you? I wish I could say that there was. I truly, really wish I could say that there was. I had a healthy disdain for all of my teachers in school. I can't really think of one except maybe in college. I had some good professors in college, but no, I was never the type that wanted to sit with the teacher, talk to the teacher, feel comfortable. No. Mm -mm. So but why did you become a teacher? I didn't know what else to do. I, because I like teenagers, because I was a camp counselor and I like teenagers. And I was like, I'm gonna be that person that I should have had. Have you a favorite writer, book, or blog about education? 
favorite now i feel like sarah palin not being now i have to say like i read everything i don't know i read everything i really just i just finished a great education podcast it was it, it was an npr it was an npr thing and it, it might have been it's a new york times thing it was called nice white parents i highly recommend it is so that a series good. or a single episode? Series. No, it was a series. It had like five entries, I think, five or six. And it was about integration. It was about segregation in the New York City school system when I was growing up and like the whole history of that. So it's pretty interesting because like I teach in a county that's segregated. They don't say they're segregated, but there's one whole part of the county where only white kids go to school. If you could make just one change to your current school and resources were not an issue, what change would you make? I think that what I would do is I would make classes smaller. That's one thing I would do is make all classes smaller. Why? Because teachers are over teachers are so overstressed. They have so much that they have to do. And if you have a kid, not so much with drama. Drama is okay to be a, a large class. But if I'm teaching math to nine kids instead of to 28 kids, that's going to be a huge difference. Okay. Okay. And finally, Madeline, what is your vision of an educated person? Ooh, a vision of an educated person. That's so interesting because it doesn't really have to, like my mom never went to college, but she was so brilliant. She read a lot. I think informed. I think being informed about not only your own culture, but other cultures and other countries and, um, and other philosophies. I think being informed. And that was Madeline Michael, who is the theatre director in Monticello High School in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the 2019 winner of the prestigious Tony Award for Excellence in Theatre in Education. You can listen back to this podcast and over 400 others by going to seandelaney.com and clicking on the Podcasts tab. You can suggest guests or topics for future podcasts by writing to me to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. If you like the podcast, please leave a review of it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, has a chapter on teaching approaches and methods and will soon be available in audiobook version, narrated by me. Until the next time, this is Sean Delaney signing off on Inside Education. Thank you for listening. 